I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What's going on is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. said i want to win the league but i want to win it better you can understand that can't you yes good lad so he's almost like having a second captain in the team <laughs> second captain first captain whatever balls of steel that's robbie Keane's one requirement for the new Ireland manager what sort of things that it need to be ballsy about robbie everything <laughs> says robbie Keane. i don't want to be specific on certain things but everything I uh, I thought it was a bit sexist. Really? Well, I mean, I, I think that it would it would have come from left field quite a bit if Ireland's next manager was to be a woman. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't think that that's something that we would have seen coming at all, really. Would still, Robbie Keane felt the need to to uh, put balls as as uh, criteria number one. The manager mm. must fulfil, and then criteria number two: don't take any shit. Mm. So. <laughs> He, re- he really wants a hard ass. Where has he learned to talk this way? Well, it's America. Ah, you know, they're always Americans. talking about their balls over there. <laughs> he came back from Italy. And balls, he, this, he came back from, balls, balls, that. <laughs> he came back from Italian football and he was diving all over the place, Ken, looking for penalties. Yeah. Comes back from the States and he's been he's, a, he's been turned into a potty mouth. He's a cultural uh, sponge in a lot of ways, <laughs> Robbie Keane. You know, he's just situated himself there in the American landscape. He also said that... As much a part of it as the Hollywood sign that that, that lies over Los Angeles. He said Mick McCarthy, Roy Keane and Martin Neal all have the requisite cojones. Yeah, uh, really... I don't know, he was was quite... He praised Mick quite a lot. This Mick thing seems to be gathering a bit of... Yeah, I hear Liam Brady was saying that it should be Mick also on RT Radio. I, I saw a tweet about it happened that she heard what Brady had to say, but if, if Brady's lending his way to Mick McCarthy, it's a pretty big deal. Mick McCarthy used to be the manager. Do we really have to go and do that again? Do we have to go and have Mick McCarthy as the manager of the other team without Roy Keane in the team? Is that really what we want to do? Maybe he could now? get Roy Keane back. I, I mean, I just think we've we had Mick McCarthy for six years. Got us to a World Cup. He did a fine job. He didn't get us to two other tournaments as well, which is usually been enough to get any manager sacked. Alan, <laughs> tell you that much. Uh, a lot of managers in the last two tournaments and get a crack at a third uh, these days. Mick McCarthy did, and maybe it's to the FAI's credit. But at the same time, it, it's a story that, that happened. It's, it's something that, that played out a long time ago. Is it something we really want to do again? I tell you, it could be a very sweet deal for Mick McCarthy if it happens because... John Delaney has made very clear that there's a lot of money to be paid to the new manager 
Dennis O'Brien's cash is there, ready to go. So Mick McCarthy might be looking at it and going, I want to get paid considerably more than I got paid the last time, please. Yeah. Oh, I think so. I mean, I don't think that's in question. Whoever gets the job will be getting paid more than Mick McCarthy was the the last time, given the special circumstances. Is there an argument to be made to watch the England match tonight or maybe one of the other qualifiers? Head of Ireland, Miguel Delaney's a good piece <gasps> on ESPN <gasps> where he outlines the Miguel Delaney Murph. Gasp! What's he say? Proud Irishman, outlining six games you'd watch tonight. And uh, Ireland, Kazakhstan does not get a mention. <laughs> England, Poland, Norway, Iceland, yeah. Turkey, Holland, I think, and Turkey going for a playoff place there. Lithuania, Bosnia, that's interesting. Bosnia, Herzegovina could qualify for the first ever World Cup. Yeah. Chile, Ecuador, and Costa Rica, Mexico. Not a hint. Miguel of Ireland against Ireland, Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan no. hmm. Surely, patriotic pride alone would be enough to throw in. Just make it seven games. I mean, I'm sure they just did. Are you going to watch Ireland tonight? There's an excellent chance, though. There's a really, really excellent chance. I mean, yeah, no, I, I probably will. But I'll be flicking back and forth to the You see, the game. thing about the in game, it's going to look electric on TV because the they're going to have, be yeah, massive Polish contingent there. England really pumped up, so maybe their home fans will kind of get off there get off their ass and get cheering the team on. Yeah. So it should be pretty good. And then you'll go back to Ireland, <laughs> which will just be not great. Yeah. There, what was the other game that, that uh, Ireland and England were playing at simultaneous times recently Was it well? England's friendly against oh, yeah. Brazil? Or uh, well, no, in, in, in England against Scotland, actually. Oh. Oh, yeah. And Ireland were playing at the same time mm. and it was like watching two completely different, different sports. sports. It was Ireland-Wales, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, Wales against Ireland in Cardiff, which was a nil-nil. Uh, didn't really. Get it was the first game where I really thought the referee was considering calling it off due to lack of interest. <laughs> I thought that there was an excellent, excellent chance of that happening. We've already got our second captain's football show out for you. Recorded that yesterday, so have a listen to that one after this if you'd like. Today we're talking boxing, international rules, and rugby. Jerry Thorny and Trevor Hogan are going to be in studio very shortly. I think the image of the Heineken Cup weekend, the one that sticks in my mind anyway, is Paul O'Connell at full time, somewhat stunned, very angry, and also flecked with bits of mud kind of stuck to his head Mm. and some blood hanging out of him also. Well, that was actually a very striking image (laughs) and you've described it quite well there. But I thought you were going to say was the sight of Sean O'Brien giving one of the most outrageous handoffs I've ever seen to to Dan Dan Bigger. And Dan Bigger's the sort of player where, you know, you wouldn't mind seeing him getting handed off in a really brutal uh, fashion. But uh, Sean O'Brien was pretty good on Saturday, I don't think there's any doubt about it. He's, yeah. uh, he's uh, yeah, the, the human wrecking, wrecking ball on back in action. If you were to take it a bit further and look for the sporting image of the weekend, full stop, Murph. Mm. I know we're at the Tuesday already, but why not? I've just shown Ken this for the first time. What is time. going on in What's that? happening there, Ken, is that a player for the... Who are the Red Sox playing again? Who are the the Detroit Tigers. The Detroit Tigers. Okay, he's running... This is late in the game. The Boston Red Sox are down by four runs. Yeah. We're in the, I think, eighth inning at this point. Big Papa, one of their main players. Is that his nickname? Papi. Big, Big Papi. Papi. Big, Big Papi. Papa. Different, different guy. Uh, <laughs> step, steps up. Uh, bases loaded. Whacks a Grand Slam home run to tie the game. What you're seeing here, Ken, I should really start describing it for people mm. as well, is the uh, fielder for the... Uh, Detroit Tigers. Detroit Tigers. <laughs> chasing after the ball, jumping over a fence, landing in the Red Sox bullpen, where yeah. all the Red Sox players are. Uh, he's head over heels. He doesn't quite catch the ball, despite his incredible bravery. And in the background, only about two feet away, is a Boston cop, a cheering. bearded man. It looks a bit like a, a glazer, actually, this guy. <laughs> cheering. He's got his hands... Right over his head. And when you see replays of this incident, it's incredible because the other Boston Red Sox players go to help 
this opponent while a cop is just standing there. You think <laughs> the one man that. he should help with Eat his arms some grass up in that. the air as the legs of the other player directly. I can't get over him. the image of, of the Red Sox famous slugger, Big Papa. I <laughs> 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 think Notorious B.I.G. would have been a good yeah, slugger. He, well, he, got, he, got he might have run those bases. <laughs> he might have run those bases. He needed to If to it's not a home run, <laughs> I don't think he's going to hit too many bases. It wouldn't be stealing bases too often. I wouldn't have thought anyway. Where were we? Now, international rules, first tests on Saturday evening in Cavan, and Australia sending an indigenous team over, which is kind of an interesting concept. Yeah, it is. And uh, Have they done this before? No, and it's, it's kind of interesting from the point of view of maybe it, 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 maybe it doesn't sound right to people's ears or something, but it's, actually, it's quite similar to the New Zealand Maori, the uh, rugby team that um, you know, is a huge, huge deal in New Zealand. Uh, and it's second only to being an All Black, and it's a huge recognition to to have played for the New Zealand Maori. So, um, by my understanding, it was actually the Aboriginal players who went to the AFL and said, "We'd love a chance to represent uh, Australia in the international rules." So they've gone with that. Um, maybe there's been some disquiet over here from the GA's point of view in that it's obviously not the best 25 or 27. Never, it never is, though. We'll, it, we could talk a bit more. And the GA haven't come out and said this, by the way, because it might seem a bit yeah. insensitive, but the, all the reports you read, the GA would prefer the highest profile players playing. But yeah. that, that hasn't happened for ages. They, they, they pick teams for whatever whatever way they pick them. And it's rarely and, the and, biggest stars. And certainly, uh, from the point of view of the indigenous section, there does appear to be a real desire to represent. So f- from that point of view, at least, it's a good idea. All right, we'll chat about that later on. The last time Carl Frampton was in the ring, he knocked out Kiko Martinez, and that was the first time that Martinez had ever been stopped. He fights again. Frampton fights again this Saturday night in his hometown of Belfast. We'll chat to him a little bit later on. But first up, it's Heineken Cup. Trevor Hogan and Jerry Thornley have popped in. Thanks very much, lads, for joining us. Always. Good morning. First thing before we get to next weekend and the weekend just gone, are we any closer, Jerry, to knowing if there is going to be anything or if next year's European competition will look anything like this year's European competition? Well, there's better mood music out there. Um, you can definitely tell that there's been far less... Um, Hostility? Yeah, from the English and French clubs in particular. Mark McCaffrey, even Bruce Craig and Nigel Ray, Paul Goes, these people haven't had a go off anybody in a couple of weeks now. Um, my understanding is that the um, English RFU chief executive, Ian Ritchie, formerly of the All England Club, has effectively become the mediator stroke go-between. Um, I think Graham Mew's appointment may have come too late and the English and French clubs seemingly will not attend the meeting that the ERC had set up for next week in mediation talks. What this means for the future of ERC per se is, is I'd say the ERC is probably in greater trouble than the Heineken Cup itself or some form of pan-European tournament. Um, Richie and the RFU are in a rock and a hard place. They're juggling an awful lot of balls in the air because they're trying to negotiate a new um, player agreement deal with the RFU. They're also trying to keep their eye on the World Cup, which is their main concern. And they also have, they don't want to alienate the Celtic and Italian unions because they've still designed the World Cup participation agreement. So he's effectively struck a very nice balance by becoming the go-between. And my understanding is that he's having a lot of discussions with PRL and LNR in France, as well as the... Um, Celtic unions and the Italians. Um, the Celtic unions are all meeting along with the English RFU on Friday in London. Ostensibly, it's a review of the Lions, but one would imagine, given yeah. the circumstances, that the, one of the main topics of discussion would be the Heineken Cup. So there are conciliatory noises being made. Um, and I think 
the opening round of the Heineken Cup was very timely as a reminder to people, wait a second, this is a brilliant tournament, we yeah. can't lose this. It is a good competition. and It does its best talking on the pitch. Yeah, <laughs> largely because one defeat in your opening game and you're in a little bit of trouble. Now usually in a way defeat and a bonus point isn't the end of the world, but for Munster it seemed that way at the weekend. And I was interested, Trevor, in Rob Penny's comments afterwards, our mental application was nowhere near what it needed to be. Very honest, but kind of surprising. Um, yeah, I mean, he was probably just... I think he, he he's just coming from the previous week against Leinster where Munster's mental attitude was, was right up there. Was right So he, it was hard to understand the change then from the following week. So he was probably, you know, just coming out with what was fairly fairly straightforwardly what happened that day. Um, because you could see, you could see early on there was, there was parts of the game that Munster you could see were in it. They were defending them all quite well. Individuals like Paula Colin Dunnick or Ryan War getting stuck in. But then there was other aspects where so certainly in, in defence they were getting really caught. And that was showing a mindset and a lack of urgency to get around the corner, to get up off the line and to defend, uh, you know, quite well in, in the Pillar AB area, which is where they got, they got Busted for for the initial try, so that was really down to an attitude and down and down to a mindset there, not on part of everyone, but definitely on part of so, certain uh, individuals. You'd have to say. How can so you turn up to a Heineken Cup match like that, though? Uh, well, any Heine- big Heineken Cup game and not be mentally tuned in. Well, not, you're not going to try and make excuses, but the, the half one kickoff is annoying. But it's not it's not an excuse for a professional uh, athlete. So I don't know. It's a complete, the, the mindset in rugby is everything. It really is huge. If you don't have that head right, and a lot of it can be the week leading up, and because if you've Munster especially, they kind of thrive off a of mental am- ammunition that they, mm. you know they're really they're up against it or they're being written off and, and that kind of thing certainly works in in a lot of teams' favour, especially Munster. And maybe some some people might have bought into the the. the, the been so good against Leinster and they were absolutely top class the intensity was everything he wanted at the breakdown but maybe sometimes when you do that leading into a big game you might you might need to you know just be reminded and apparently the war there was no complacency from the training during the week but maybe some of the some of the players just didn't have it upstairs for that day Yeah you could kind of see it Jerry. you could see O'Connell from quite early on seemed to be getting a little bit angry I guess those senior players who've been there probably see these things developing and it must be frustrating when it happens. Yeah, and it's very unusual to see something like that happen in a Munster team with Paul O'Connell on the pitch. That's the most... And to see the lineup malfunction as it did, which seemed a complete malfunction. You can't just lame it all at the door of Mike Sherry. There just seemed to be real malfunctions going on there. And I guess what Trevor's just described there, you add in the fact that they made the semi-finals last year. They beat um, Harlequins away in the road. They did very well against Claremont, came within a score, arguably, of reaching the final and wouldn't have been a reasonably good bet to win the final. That's how close they were. Then they um, rediscovered their mojo at home to Leinster, which again was very much an ammunition, emotionally driven game. Munster at their best. These people from Dublin <laughs> who've yeah. come here and won an hour patch two years yeah. in a row looking to beat us for the third time in a row for the first time in Thomond Park since the early 70s. We don't want that indignity in our doorstep. And Munster have always been much better with their backs against the wall. You go to Murrayfield, half one kickoff, having just beaten Leinster, having made the semi-finals last year and you're playing a team that are bottom of the Rabo Pro 12 in that funereal library-like atmosphere that is uniquely devoted to Murrayfield I mean Toulouse have lost there before Leinster have lost there before it happens to him. and the one thing I would say about this is I think Trevor it's more likely 
to happen to a young side. You take O'Gar out of that equation as well. I'm not blaming Ian Keatley, but it's a youngish side. You look at that front row, they're all youngish players. You've got, it's a younger Munster team than you would generally see out. And I think a young team is more liable to get a little bit carried away with themselves than an experienced team. I say, yeah, you're right, you're dead right. It's just there will be so much anger, though, in, in the likes of O'Connell, the likes mm. of uh, Dunnick Ryan and, and the Keith Earls and the, and the senior guys this week, thinking that, that they allow that to happen, that yeah. they shouldn't have to be reliant on, oh, everyone's writing us off. And they'll be so professional that they, they, you know, they, they'll expect to have that mindset you know, week every week. You mm. know, it's, it, they'll they'll be so. I can imagine how those those video <laughs> sessions and training this week will just be bitter bitterness driving them on all week. So, you know, you can just be guaranteed that Gloucester are in for it this weekend. But the lads will will. I can imagine they won't. It's 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 a sickener really because yeah. you've you've had to learn the hard way again and learn all. Oh, it's it's about getting that consistency. You don't want to be have to have the old cliche. We need to have our backs against the wall to but produce the goods. Go yeah. yeah, that's it's why the fourth it's time in the last sickener. five years. They've lost their opening match. What strikes me, I mean, they're, they're very and both years they won the Heineken Cup. They yeah, lost their opening match. We should say they're very much still in the tournament, and it is yeah. a negotiable oh, group, yeah. so they could well get back on track. But it seems that when things have gone badly for the team in the last season or so, Rob Penny seems to have gotten a lot of the blame. Now, this could just be my perception. And when things have gone well, such as in that quarterfinal last year, everyone said, oh, well, the players took it over. The players took ownership. Is it time for the players actually to put their hand up when things go badly and say, it doesn't matter what coaches, it doesn't matter what game plan we're trying. If we can't, if we play as badly as we did the other day, we're just not going to win Heineken Cup games. A little bit of that, but I just come back on Jerry's point on the, on the line out there. I mean, you have to give huge credit to Sean Cox. I, I thought his reading of the line was absolutely top notch. It was probably the best defensive line out on the weekend, himself and Gilchrist. No, like, the calls were fairly spot on but Cox was floating in the line and he was reading he was reading some of the, the monster dummies that were that were quite good but he just picked them off and and there's an element of how good Edinburgh were, and it's, it might sound like a bit of an oxymoron, but Edinburgh actually really good defensively. They were really good in taking the opportunities that Munster probably gave them when when they were slack in defence early on. So there's a little bit of that, but you know, I, I think the players themselves know they they just didn't have the do, same. Do you intensity. take that point, Jerry? Just that it seems that maybe Penny has has taken quite a lot of stick uh, when things go badly and, and not necessarily uh, gotten the praise when things have gone right so far. You, you couldn't really put the defeat to Edinburgh down purely to uh, a team that's not coached properly. It looked like a team that just... Well, I don't know, maybe that is the coach's fault if they're mentally not tuned in, but the, the players, I would have thought, have to take responsibility. I would have thought so. I mean, you're right. After they won the quarterfinal, O'Connell joked and he said he was even joking with Penny about it afterwards. We'll get the credit for this now. You won't. And... <laughs> And, you know, they, they just read a cup match as they did. In actual fact, if you looked, I thought they got their tactics spot on against Munster and they looked like, a, or against Leinster, rather. And they looked like a really well-prepared, well-coached side and it was a good balance to their game. It wasn't just ball in hand, touchline to touchline. It was, you know, predicated on a very good defence and, and a superb kick-chase game and things like that. And I thought there was a much better balance to their game and they were they're using Downey off off the top ball, up the middle, which they weren't doing nearly as much, in my opinion, last season. So I think there's been a much better balance to their game this season. And I think, to a degree, the players have to take some some of the the blame for not being mentally quite out, right at it. I don't know what a coach can do there. I mean, this, after all, was a pack that lineup malfunctioned that had Paul O'Connell in it, had Dunnaker Ryan in it, and is coached by Anthony Foley. Like, you're just um, allowing for how good they that Edinburgh were for... In the early in the second half, for Munster took up the right hand touchline, and for Mike Sherry to then want to throw the ball in, and nobody goes up in the air and gets done for um, 
a fake movement, that's purely a malfunction, isn't it? That's just a malfunction. Yeah, I think you're right. That in that occasion, definitely. Well, I'd say what was happening at that point was they were, we're quite rattled. rattled, and, rattled. Uh, yeah. and I saw Dunica and Paul having a little chat yes. at one stage yeah. about, you know, where are we going to look to go here? Because Cox was and, and Gilchrist were su- putting serious pressure on their balls. So that's, that's probably a reflection of the pressure they were being put under. But in terms of the shape, I think... You're dead right. I think Munster have got a good balance. That Early on, they were threatening. When they got onto the 22, they were quite rootless. They, nice they, and direct, yeah, weren't they? A lot of straight runners. And that's what they, they seem to be doing. That, yeah. that pattern, that wide pattern, only maybe comes in certain areas of field off, off loose play yeah. and, and when it might be on. And they recognised that a few times. But when they got into the 22, they were quite rootless. But where the problem was, was defensively. They let Edinburgh mm. in, who didn't really have that much to offer in attack, let them in for a couple of soft tries. Were they a bit deep and too lateral at times as well? They were, they were quite comp- Pressed, you yeah. know, and, and there was, you know, there was a lack of urgency to get what to get out wide. One line break yeah, in the whole match, yeah, and one, and, weeks, you know. Yeah, <sighs> sounds like you both think though they will get it back on track, Jerry, uh, this weekend. I'd be astonished if they wouldn't, and I think that's where I wouldn't have too many gripes. There's a lot of people question whether Rob Penny should have said what he said afterwards. I think it's a bit like balling out a group in a dressing room. A coach can occasionally do it. If a coach does it too much, it loses its impact. Rob Penny doesn't generally come out and break ranks and is that critical. Before You saw Conor O'Shea do it with Harlequins. There comes a point when you just a coach cannot stand Conor up. Conor O'Shea went, went crazy. Yes, players, actually. yes yeah. far worse. Yeah. So I think, I, think it's, I think it would be symptomatic of a mood in Munster, classic mood, backs against the wall, knowing that if you lose your opening two matches, you're as good as goosed. You know, the turkey's in the oven and the temperature's ratcheted up to about 200. No team has ever got out of the pools having lost their opening two matches. You've got an English team coming to town. It's six o'clock in Thomond Park, darkness descending. You know, there'll be lots of um, echoes of the miracle match in 03 and previous meetings with Gloucester. I would be astonished if they're such an emotional group. They do, do rely on emotion. They always have done more and mo- more so than I think any other Irish team. And I think emotion will be running pretty high this week. Trevor, you think they'll do it as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's not, nothing more is certain in my view, that Munster will come out with an intensity to match what they had in Leinster. Mm. But, uh, you know, behind that, they will still be sickened of what they, they had to let it come to this point, yeah. you know. But you're guaranteed Munster looking at four points this weekend. OK, Leinster at home to cast after a, a morale-boosting victory, I was going to call it, Jerry. I don't know how accurate that is, but certainly a nice boost for Matt O'Connor quite mm-hmm. early on in his yeah. in his reign. Um, whatever didn't go right against Munster, he said that, look, the players took responsibility, we talked about it, they fixed it. He, he clearly knows that even if the squad doesn't look as, as strong as it did maybe a year or two ago, um, he's, he's, he's got a pretty good team there. There's so many good aspects to that win. I was at it um, and maybe had to be there to appreciate how well they silenced the home crowd. And it, it looked that re- way, all right. Yeah. It was a really classic away performance, like a soccer team on the road going away in the Champions League and winning 1-0. And, and, a, and a comfortable 1-0 at that and just subduing the home crowd. And they really negated the Ospreys at source. You take away that Osprey scrum and you suddenly realise so much of their game is predicated on that Lions infused pack dominating the scrum that when you take that away from them and then certainly when you counteract them at the breakdown by flooding the breakdown as well and you don't give them quick ball and you've got Sean O'Brien bringing his A game and Jamie Heaser bringing his A game so many boxes were ticked I think that was really good from watching it was that you take out Brian O'Driscoll, you take out Johnny Sexton, Easton Sewell, Leo Cullen, Shane Jennings, the leadership core really of the last five or six, seven years since the two boys came back from Leicester. And you look at how John O'Brien and Jamie Heasel and these guys stepped up to the plate and became the leaders on the day. They were their, their tactics spot on. It was a really focused performance. You go through the 15 of them and hardly anybody had a bad game. Gordon Darcy put a pretty horrific show in Thumb and Bart by his inordinately high standards behind him. Tackled big, carried well, used his footwork. Everybody contributed to it and it was just a, it was a fairly good win and then to 
become only the third side ever to beat the Ospreys in the Heineken Cup and, 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 at the Liberty Stadium and then to deny them a bonus point at the end was a really good, efficient start. And for O'Connor, it was shades of Joe Schmidt's early reign. Um, you know, last week they were supposedly in crisis. Now it's Munster in crisis. I suppose that tells us much. But, um, you know, I think uh, it was a nice fill-up for him. And he got us, you have to say, not only to get his tactics right, the coaching staff did, but he got his selection was totally How vindicated. How found him so far? I know it's too early to judge whether he's going to be a success yeah. or not. But in terms of any differences to how Joe Schmidt approached things? Yeah, um, we, I don't think we've seen an awful lot of the attacking changes to the attacking game, but certainly in defence, their line speed has improved. At times, they're using shooters and they're pushing up harder, and it's becoming less soakage. I mean, that is like you think back to the Amland final, Leinster become so efficient in the execution of their attacking game and were so comfortable in their own defensive game that they were kind of in cruise control and winning an Amlin final against Stadford and say, but something like less than 40% of possession because they knew they could do it. Mm. He's seeking to take that load away a little bit from the defence by making that bit more aggressive. That's one big change I've seen. What sort of feedback have you heard, Trevor? Yeah, they're really loving that aspect of what Jerry song with that line speed, you know, just to really... And, and I'm, hear, I'm hearing that there were actually a lot of lads towards the end, and you could see it nearly. They were comfortable with the Ospreys having the ball, and they, they were like they, they just couldn't see them getting through them. Mm. Um, you know, they were cho- they were chopping them, and they were just they were actually breaking the soul of, of Ospreys because there was so many guys in that Leinster team that were able to go for the poach, that were able to get over the ball. You have Sean O'Brien, you have Keen Healy, you have Gordon Darcy, you have Sean Cronin. Jamie Heath, if you go through the whole squad, they're all able to get in over that ball. And that's just soul destroying for, for the Ospreys. Rook after rook, having to get there, having to either whip him off the ball or, because their ball is constantly getting slowed up. So by the end, like, the Ospreys actually didn't want possession. They mm. were, they, I mean, even before half time, they had a chance to, to maybe run at home. They actually kicked it out to touch and said, let's, Let's just go for half time. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and same, in, in the end, the 75th minute, the box kicked the ball away because they were heartbroken by, by Leinster. And Leinster just knew that. They were loving letting them have the ball. And, uh, you know, then Leinster are just so professional, so ruthless then. We're talking about Munster when they get into opposition 22. But Leinster, when they get there, they are absolutely deadly. You have you to know? say Goppert played them and, and yeah. Boss played them in the right areas as well. Exactly, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did. And then when you have... <coughs> you, lads like, yeah. you love that in a 10, don't totally, you? Totally, you do. And, and, forward. I, and I say Sean Cronin is loving running off yeah. the likes of Goppert. Because Sean Cronin is like, you know, he's like a, an extra outside centre mm. playing, you know, all over the field. And he can run great lines. Mm. You saw the line he ran off. Yeah. O'Driscoll a couple of weeks back and the line he ran then off Goppert for that break to, to Sean O'Brien it's just you have so much options so much threats and, and, and when they get there they're going to come away with a score not great news for Madigan though that Goppert no. played so well no it's or not or for Joe Schmidt by extension exactly I mean the out half thing now you look at it um, <clears throat> Ian Keighley did not have a great afternoon in Murrayfield he was down the pecking order either, rightly or wrongly and hadn't made the squad um, Madigan went out in the summer tour and was um, chosen to start both tests but when you look back over the weekend Madigan is probably going to be I think I think there will be a degree of fluidity in Leinster because you've got to take Matt O'Connor at his word that's what he said it was going to be he did give Madigan the Munster game he did say whoever started that game need not necessarily start the first game of the Heineken Cup so for once coach was absolutely just being honest maybe he's one yeah. of these coaches and we're just so used to coaches not being, being a little bit economical with the truth yeah. for various good reasons that he, we take him at face value and Madigan will still get a fair bit of rugby but the likelihood is that coming into the November internationals Madigan will have started just two games without half and none of the Heineken Cup whereas Paddy Jackson um, had a cracking game on Friday night for Ulster and 
will, would have to be on the bench now. Whether he's ready to be on the bench, you'd certainly hope Johnny Sexton stays well and healthy for the November test. Yeah, the good news probably in terms of young players coming through was Martin Moore, his performance in the front row. Jerry mentioned the sort of all-star pack that the Ospreys have and certainly in the front row, but, uh, very familiar faces there. But Moore did really well. We'll probably be back in now with Mike Ross injured next weekend and it just, that doesn't need to be a cause for concern necessarily. Definitely not. Like Mar- Marty Moore, nearly what the performance of the weekend nearly. Mm-hmm. I mean, to come in there at that moment, <laughs> Alan Wynn Jones probably thought, all right, Mike Rossi has gone. He wouldn't have heard of Mar- Marty Moore, but he knows about him now because Marty came in there and I, I see that Greg Feek has given the whole pack a lot of credit. That's great. He's just trying to keep him humble. But a, a lot of that down was to, to Marty's body position. He's just a squat little, he's a, you know, he's a unique body shape. He's perfect for the new, the new rules. The new rules. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he doesn't need to be that massive. You mean little sumo wrestlers, yeah, don't you? It's not down the hill anymore. In, in, in what yeah. way is he perfect? Well, we, I think going overly, uh, his nickname a few years ago, I don't know, it's probably gone now. We called him the, the baby calf, you know, because he, he, imagine trying to move a baby calf like, like <laughs> in that position. He's just, you know, but he's a fairly big calf in fairness to him. But he has got the perfect body height and body shape for that for mm. that role. Now, listen, to come on there against Duncan Jones, who's probably getting a little bit old, but also Hibbert and and the other John Adam, you know, it's yeah. it's it's a it's a and 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 you could see the lift that it gave to the whole pack there when everyone was was slapping him on the back of the head and it brought the energy to, to not only to give Leinster a massive boost but to sicken and it deflate them it absolutely yeah. you see the look on Adam Jones's face when he gets up yeah. and the Ospreys have traditionally caused Leinster a lot of problems in the scrums and it was a huge moment at the time like I remember when, he, when, he, mm. when Alan Wynne-Jones went for the penalty you're sitting there and you think oh I've just watched Munster lose and yeah. Leinster 6-3 down away from home their bogey side Mike Ross is off the pitch if this is third 13 3, are they going to come back from here? It was one of the moments of the weekend. Yeah. He's only started two matches for Leinster before last weekend. But I remember coming back the, the Rabo Direct launch over a year ago and Leo Cullen telling me that Marty Moore played that preseason friendly where they got thrashed in Leicester. But he said, Marty Moore, wow, what a scrummage. He's going to be yeah. a fantastic player. And not only that, though, but he's, he's around the field. He's chopping lads. He's mm. aggressive. He gets up off. Listen, he, he'll be kept, his feet will be kept on the ground. Um, you know, outside 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 of Marty's performance, there was other there's other great props coming through. Um, but you have to give credit to John Fogarty and the academy there in in, yeah. in in Leinster that had him ready to come in like that and perform in the highest level. Just a word on Sean O'Brien also who was given man of the match. It sounds like you think that maybe Moore would have been a, uh, no, yeah, a runner yeah. for that but Sean O'Brien yeah. played pretty well as well. Uh, yeah. He seems to, I don't know Jerry if you even would have seen this interview in Sky if you were working over there so maybe not but he was standing beside that rather... The pitch side one. Yeah, the yeah, rather bizarre... The, the volume wasn't working in yeah, the press box I didn't hear. The rather bizarre tactics truck thing that they, they have yeah. out there but uh, just it struck me how comfortable he looks even in that slightly uh, surreal environment for a sports person. He's talked recently about his contract negotiations and he seems to be handling that in quite a, quite a dignified way. Also, just putting it out there, uh, kind of a move if I have to. Um, but you know, I, I want to stay, but I want to I want to get I want to get paid properly. Essentially, mm. I want to get a proper deal. It, it seems that you talk about leadership, and maybe he didn't have the best year of his career last year, but he seems to really have stepped up over the last number. Of, it, just, it just seems like a guy whose demeanour 
really just just is all about positivity, all about leadership. Yeah, and um, he doesn't. He looks to me like a lad who just never gets phased by anything. Trevor, I presume you know that. He's just the times I've met him and spoken to him, he seems quite um, even keeled all the time. You know, mm. he's not phased by anything. Despite constantly being trolled by Brian O'Driscoll on Twitter, he, <laughs> yeah. he seems to be and, all right. And pound for pound, he's probably the best Irish rugby player of the last three or four years. Let's be honest really? about it. Yeah, I would say so. When you've got a, a, a human wrecking ball like that as a carrier, as a fetcher, as a support player, uh, what he does with the breakdown, what he does in contact and the collisions defensively, I'd say pound for pound. Yeah. He's probably the best rugby player in Ireland. And you look at some of the criticism maybe of him not being a seven, but if you look at oh, the amount wow. the amount of, of steals and approaches yeah. that he was getting the weekend, and he does it all the time, it's, it's, it's really it's ridiculous to hear those criticisms. But some people mightn't be aware, but Sean O'Brien, I met him when he came back from the lines, and he was in a cast... His, his thumb was, he's after had an operation on his thumb and he'd um, had an operation on, on his knee, he had cartilage removed. And I was like, what's the crack? When did this happen? <laughs> this is after the third test when he was, when he was savage. And he said, oh yeah, I played the, played the whole way through with it, you know. He's just an absolute out and out animal, you know. And, <laughs> and to, to, you know, to produce that, he, it's like that operation on his knee was, was, you know, it wasn't easy either, and he, he got he's that's that's only his second game back, you know, and he would have been playing a lot of last season possibly with those little niggles, and yeah. you know he keeps coming back and producing that. Kind he of is injury prone, and for that reason, is, if I was in his camp, I would yeah. advise him. If the money is not that big a discrepancy between going to the top couturers or staying in Ireland, stay in Ireland because you know you will play less games, you will be looked after better, yeah. and you know it might be the difference between having a very lo- a longer career and a shorter career as well. You look at the age profile of all the Munster and Leinster players who've played until their mid and late thirties because it, mm. I mean the the program here does work. Yeah, you, you, look, it's a huge factor. You know, Isn't it? We're going to have to take that into account. So hopefully the the IRFU can can get it sorted. No surprise on Saturday in the Leinster game, either of you, Castor and Cunningham come over and win, or are they? Well, it'll be interesting to see their team selection. That'll tell us much. <clears throat> they've um, they've the worst. They're the worst defenders of Bukele de Brenu in the history of the top couturers. After nine games, they're in 11th place. That's partly because they've had five away games as opposed to five home games. That makes a big difference in France, where I think there's been less than 15% away wins, and most of those have been Pearl Beeritz. So it would depend. They've done nothing on the road. They've lost all five games on the road. Um, Coaching team is gone as well. Yeah, um, they've got about four or five key players. Rory Cockett's been linked with Toulon. Um, a few others have been linked with their old coaches at Racing. Metro, there might be a kind of um, a big hemorrhaging at the end of the year. They look as if they're having a little bit of a second season syndrome, but that was a very good win against Northampton. And they do have arguably a lot of people would rate their set pieces, their scrum and line out as the best in the top 14. So it'll just be interesting, it'll be a test. But I, I don't imagine Leinster will allow themselves to get carried away. And Munster, what happened to Munster would be good warning for them. Trevor, you think Leinster to win? Yeah, Leinster to win. I, you know, Jerry's right there, they have a really strong mall, really strong lineup. But Leinster at home are a serious outfit. Ulster away to Montpellier. It's a tough group that Ulster are in, but they made a pretty good start. Mark Anscombe, I see, is saying that they aren't being talked about as much this year, which maybe isn't necessarily a, a bad thing. Uh, how do you rate their chances this week? I think it's no harm that they lost their opening two games as well. I think I might have said this before, that you know last year, by round three, when they beat Northampton away, they were still unbeaten, and the Belfast Telegraph was asking the Tuesday before the return home meeting in December, is this the greatest Ulster team ever? And I'm, we're talking pages and pages asking this question, and all this manner of former players and pundits been asked this, I'd say Mark Anscombe and David Humphreys looked at that and said, oh, that's just what we need. And sure enough, they go and lose the following Friday at home to Northampton. I don't think they're going to get as carried away with themselves this time. Pienaar coming back is a huge boost. Even his cameo, just to be there on Friday night when he came on, 
the man is deified there. He really is. They just, they just, they, they're wearing the pinar masks and everything else. He's, he's the cult hero of the Ravenhill crowd. And you see him play like he did. And he presumably will start this weekend, which is just as well, because I think Montpellier are dark horse to win this whole thing. I think, look, the best scrum half in French rugby, in Jonathan Pellissier, the best out half in Francois Tron-Duke, even if the French coach doesn't think he, he's so in either case, and they're the best coach in Fabien Galtier. So it's, if they get even a bonus point out of this, it might be a good result. Uh, and just on Connacht, away to Zebra, Trevor. Um, yeah, Connacht, yeah. It's a bit of a heartbreaker at the weekend. Oh, wow. But they were massive, though. They were really good, really good, really intense, really... You know, really exactly the performance that Pat Lamb would have been looking for. Um, really strong pick and grow goals in the 22, really rootless in that. It's apart from the last play of the game that could have really, mm. really nicked it there. Um, good kick chase, good aggression in their, in their line speed as well. Um, so, you know, I think that will still be, you know, annoying to have, have lost that, but it would give them huge, huge impetus going into this one. Okay, lads, we'll leave it at that and we'll look out for the baby calf in the front row for <laughs> Leinster this weekend. Trevor Jerry, great stuff, thank you. Baby <laughs> calf, he's, he's getting quite big now. He might be close to a bullock at this stage. In fairness, thanks. Cheers, thanks. Dryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Yeah, it's fair enough. I think Murph that Marty Moore mm. is now the bullock. Yes, <laughs> he was the baby calf. Yeah, well, I, mean, I, I think that that's just a natural progression, I suppose. Sean for O'Brien, a baby calf Trevor had also outlined that Sean O'Brien is an animal. He didn't say whether or not O'Brien had any particular nicknames, any yeah. type of animal. He's, he's a farmer. I mean, I guess he would be an expert on it himself. So maybe he's the man to ask. Well, I, I think that there's every chance that Sean O'Brien was the the creator of the original baby calf nickname. Mm-hmm. So I think you know. I mean, I, I it's probably lazy stereotyping of me. I mean, I'm sure other members of the Leinster team have tried to chase a baby calf and move a baby calf, but it's just Sean O'Brien's name is the name that immediately comes to mind when you try and mm-hmm. talk about stuff like is this. Is any rugby player known as the Beaver? The Beaver, no. I mean, and again, or the Badger. No one's ever no one's ever really been called the Badger. Beaver is a, uh, would I be good at rugby, I'd say. Yeah. Has a, has a compact sort of um, physique with a lot of rigorous power well, I th- and I th- deceptive pace. I mean, if you've ever... I, I don't know if you've ever seen that video of a beaver. Um, it's, it's a sort of video from Russia, I think. I mean, it's a, kind of a very big YouTube video. Hmm. And the Russian guy is sort of following the beaver along and sort of v- videoing it. It's just plodding along the road. I mean, you know what a beaver looks like. Yeah. Small. Yeah. Not, not that small, though, in a way. So, in, in ways, if, if we're talking about what Trevor Hogan describes Sean O'Brien as an animal... Then maybe Sean O'Brien's nickname should be the Beaver. The Beaver O'Brien sounds very good, actually. It could, it could catch on. The thing, eventually, after after looking around at him a couple of times, um, eventually turns around towards him, and obviously he continues to stand there. I mean, what's it going to do? Hmm. The answer is it's got to come at you. Like, I mean, it, it came at him like a bullet. And all you then hear is as the camera sort of obviously yeah. uh, is as the screams and the sort of tearing of flesh. Uh, surprisingly pacey animals. Rowan Connolly joins us now, a senior football writer with The Age in Melbourne, to talk to us about the international rules. Rowan, I guess it's the same question in one way every few years, but particularly I think this year there seems to be a waning maybe of interest over this side of the world. What's the Australian interest level like this year? Well, I'd I'd like to be able to say it's improved, but to be perfectly honest, I don't think it has. Um, 
Look, there might be a, a touch more um, interest, I think, because of the Indigenous concept. Um, but I guess, you know, we re- really won't know until we check the TV ratings. And it's it, whilst it is on television here, it's not on one of the... Um, the major free-to-air uh, networks, or sorry, it is on one of the free-to-air networks, but on one of the secondary channels. So uh, I'm not sure it's going to rate its socks off. And um, look, you know, like usual this time of year here, there's a lot of distractions, um, particularly with the AFL uh, trade period. You know, there's a lot of players sort of switching clubs and a lot of football focus on that. And there's the spring racing carnival and... Um, and, uh, well, we've got the added uh, issue at the moment of our soccer team, which uh, isn't exactly covering itself in glory at the moment. So um, there's a fair bit of sport on the agenda. And unfortunately, um, yeah, I don't think this is sort of uppermost in people's minds. The Indigenous concept is interesting. What's the thinking behind it? Oh, look, I think um, it's probably twofold. Um, one is I know the Indigenous players led by... Adam Goods particularly were uh, approached the AFL at the start of this year about um, greater opportunities to field a team of their own. Now, there is an Indigenous All-Stars team um, which has played a number of pre-season games. Now, this concept started actually about 30 years ago, but um, that was a one-off game and there was another one-off game about 10 years after that. And since 2003, um, the All-Stars have played an AFL team every two years. So all up, there's been eight of those games, although one of them was actually washed out. Um, and look, you know, they've been good for the cause, I suppose. But again, you know, they haven't been televised here and, um, you know, haven't really had that much exposure. So, I mean, that's one part of it. And the, the other obvious one, I think, is, you know, an attempt to try to revive interest in the series um, both you know from an Australian and Irish perspective and I think one thing that is good about it is that there's absolutely no question that all these guys who are over in your parts now they, they really want to be there and um, that can't always have been said particularly in recent trips I think and we've had you know squads picked and so many players have pulled out for one reason or another and that really hasn't happened this time. I mean, all the Indigenous players were, were dying to be part of it. And, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm a supporter of the concept because I think, um, you know, Indigenous players have, have contributed so much to AFL football, particularly in the last 20-odd years. And, look, they comprise... Um, there's close to 100 Indigenous players in the AFL now, which, um, you know, in a player pool of a bit over 800, uh, it's, a, it's a really high percentage. So... You know, I think they're a very important part of the game and, um, you know, they deserve some sort of recognition in their own right. And uh, hopefully, you know, this, this will give it to them. Has the AFL generally been um, pretty progressive in this area? Michael O'Loughlin is the coach um, who was an absolutely brilliant player, uh, an Indigenous player who played, I think, his entire career with the Sydney Swans. Um, yeah. Ron, but I think going back, say, 10 years before that, it seems as though... Uh, it's only really over the last 20 years or so that uh, there have been a lot of Indigenous players playing. Is that right? Did it, did it take a while for for whatever reason for this actually to come about? Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, look, there's, you know, there's always been the one-offs, um, you know, back, going, even going back to the 1930s, there was a, a player who played for Fitzroy, one of the clubs, or now defunct clubs here, um, 
uh, called Douglas Nichols. Um, there was a, a really good Aboriginal player for uh, Carlton of the 60s and 70s called Sid Jackson. Um, but it, it really, yeah, the, there really weren't that many of them prepared to come to Victoria um, until probably uh, the game changer in that regard was Michael Long, um, who, who became a champion for Essendon and a really important um, part of, I, I think, the push for recognition by Indigenous players. Um, and he started playing in the VFL in 1989. And I think, you know, with his entry, a lot more players, particularly from the Northern Territory, um, became prepared to come, come down to Victoria, where most of the competition was still based. And that's the other thing, too. I think the nationalisation of the competition... Um, there's always been a lot more players, uh, Indigenous players in Western Australia and South Australia. And with the entry of their teams into the AFL, <clears throat> I think that's helped as well. There's also been a couple of really pivotal incidents, um, one involving Michael Long uh, in 1995 when he was racially abused by an opponent in um, an Anzac Day game you know, in front of a crowd of nearly 100,000. And... Uh, he took a stand and said, you know, look, I'm, I'm not going to cop this sort of stuff because until then, racial abuse on the field had pretty much been seen as just, you know, part of the, the hurly-burly of the game. And um, that was a real uh, game-changer because the, the AFL was sort of forced to act. And on the back of that, they introduced a uh, vilification code, which, you know, is now spread to encompass things like... Um, you know, religious vilification or, you know, homophobia and, and stuff like that. So that was a really important incident. And there was another one, too, a couple of years before that, 1993, um, which got a, a big... Um, uh, there was a big sort of remembrance of that this year because it was 20 years later. And uh, there was when a player called Nicky Winmar, who played for St Kilda, um, played in a game at Collingwood, um, which I actually covered. That's, you know, I've been doing this job far too long, but I was actually there that day and... Uh, he and another Indigenous player, Gilbert McAdam, both starred in, in this win against Collingwood and, and they were both subjected to terrible racial abuse, not from the Collingwood players, but from the crowd. And uh, there's a very famous photograph of Nicky Winmar at the end of the game holding up his jumper and pointing to the colour of his skin and, and saying, um, you know, I'm, I'm Aboriginal and I'm proud, you know. Um, and, and that... Those two moments, I think, were pivotal in sort of changing the mindset about Indigenous players. And we've all, you know, some of the best players we've seen in the last 20 years have been Indigenous. You know, we've had Andrew McLeod, who played for Adelaide, won a couple of uh, Norm Smith medals, which is for the best player in our grand final. Uh, Michael, Michael Long um, won a Norm Smith medal uh, a couple of years before that. Um, Adam Goods is now a, uh, a two-time Brownlow medal winner. So, you know, they really are um, some of the, the leading Indigenous players are among the, the best handful of players in the AFL and no exception with this squad over there now. Um, you know, uh, Goods, obviously, Lance Franklin, who's just, um, you're probably aware, has just moved from Hawthorne to Sydney on a incredibly, on a nine-year uh, contract worth uh, $10 million. So that's sort of set new uh, ground in terms of player payments. So... I mean, uh, they, they just are, are freakish, some of these players, and they bring a lot of excitement and athletic ability. And, you know, I think they'll be a very exciting team to watch. It seems as though the, 
the players want to use this as a platform also. I saw that O'Loughlin and Adam Goods were, uh, did a press conference the other day wearing, I think it was wearing t-shirts um, bearing the, is it the recognised movement, uh, which is essentially the the argument that the, the history of Indigenous Australians isn't recognised in the Constitution of Australia and uh, clearly um, people feel that it should be. Uh, now what's interesting about that is that a lot of sports organisations tend to run pretty scared when there's any sort of political statement or anything like that mentioned. Um, has there been any reaction to this in, in Australia? Um, look, not as such, which, you know, I think is a really good thing. And, and I have to say, the, the AFL, uh, you know, I'm critical of the AFL about some things, but certainly not in terms of their progressiveness. You know, I think they really have led from the front on this and in issues like uh, drugs in, in sport as well. Um, and it's often put them at odds. Uh, you know, funnily enough, we've, we've just had a change of government here to a, a conservative government, and uh, it'll be interesting to see whether there's a bit of conflict between them and the AFL, because in the previous um, conserv- uh, Liberal Party government, which you know ended in 2007, um, they had several sort of sparring matches with the AFL over issues like the drugs policy, and uh, look at, you know, a, a landmark moment politically here came in 2007 with um, the then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd uh, making an apology in Parliament to the children of a stolen generation, um, you know, which uh, basically speaking, um, you know, a, a, a lot of um, Indigenous children were, were taken away from their parents and uh, basically forced into foster care. Um, you know, this is as recently as the you know 1950s and 1960s and um you know that's that's caused a lot of angst uh and yet you know there are there are quite a number of conservative politicians in this country who dispute that that actually happened so it is a bit of a political hot potato but i think the afl hasn't been afraid to confront it and you know i think good on them for that okay ron it's been great to talk to you uh, enjoy the series thanks very much for chatting uh pleasure you mentioned earlier, Murphy, that the GAA isn't too happy, uh, or so we're hearing anyway, that they're not too happy that um, the AFL have gone this way because they obviously want the most high-profile players possibly playing the game. But I think the GAA has to get its own house in order. It's it's always kind of committed to this concept, but it can't even... There are 52 weeks in the year, 52 weekends in the year, and yet we get to this point of October and you've got Michael Murphy captaining his country and also being required, as things stand, to play a championship, Donegal championship match. It's a final. Oh, yeah, sorry, I'm I'm not belittling that Mm. final, but what I'm saying is, if the GA can't even find a way, and I know there are different, it's it's a bigger problem than just the international rules. There's a a massive issue with fixture, this club fixture list all over the place, but if I'm Australian looking at it, I'm going, hang on a second, What what are you saying to us? You can't even get that sorted. And also, you know, you look at the likes of the last, tournament, Stephen Cluxon was captain, and fair enough, he's obviously a very good captain, uh, very, has been a very good captain for Dublin, but if you're talking about the person you most want to promote the game, it wouldn't be Stephen Cluxon, notably not a real media performer. Yeah. So I don't, know if the G, the, I don't know if the GAA really is in a position to argue too much with the AFL. I, I think it's a really strange situation at the moment in that neither organisation is committed to it 100%. And I think there was a time there where maybe Ireland were more into it than the Australians were. Uh, and now I'm just, it's nearly, this game is continuing out of politeness nearly, you know, which mm. is no real background for... Uh, I used to be a fan of it. I've always thought that it 
could take off. I'm, I'm always watching the game thinking this could be brilliant, but they rarely are. Uh, I know people talk about the violence being taken out of it now, or whatever. Yeah, maybe that's part of it, and that's not a bad thing, but if a sport is only popular because it's violent, it's probably not a very good runner in the long term. Yeah. But I, I just, I've never seen, I've never thought the quality, it seems like one team plays very well one year, one team maybe another year. It, it's rare, I think, that you see the, the best of both sports, which is supposed to be the idea. Yeah, I, like, I was at a couple of amazing occasions in Crow Park. Uh, the 04 test, and I think the, was the 06 test as well. They were brilliant. They were absolutely brilliant sporting occasions, full houses, and the sport did seem, really seem to be going places. But as you said, when the violence went out of it, you know, it's not just the violence though. I mean, I think that there was, I think the Australians were a little annoyed at how that was handled and kind of ever since then, we're like, well, you know, like, what, what they thought we were being a little too precious. Yeah, like they didn't particularly know, appreciate the our, our little GA tricks of standing on their toes and you know, yeah, ri- you know, grabbing their necks and stuff like this. Yeah. <laughs> I'd much rather just completely brutalize you with a tackle than uh, all of this kind of. Were we sort of in the role of Estudiantes against Manchester United in the the Australians being the uh, muscular English team and then us being the tricky? No. Dirty Argentinians. No, no. I, no, the Australians were pretty dirty. It was just they were physical and dirty. It was we just, just, kind of it was just more obvious. Clotheslines and so forth, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, oh, I they think... were terrible. I mean, it was unbelievable what they were doing. Yeah. But you can't deny that there is a lot of entertainment value in that. Well, yeah. I they, mean, it's unfortunate, you know. Of course, that's my point, but that's not a long term project. Bones get broken. That's not a long term project, then, you know what I mean? No, well, the, the whole thing isn't a long term project. It's t- it's a it's a non sport played by two teams at opposite ends of the world who only ever play each other once every, what, two years or something like that? Yeah. Two years at the moment. There's, yeah. no, there's no future in that. Like. Yeah, yeah does, once it went back to two years, that's kind of. Yeah, it. it, 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 it uh, well, listen, Saturday, Saturday even could still be a. Uh, a uh, pretty good occasion. Apparently, the tickets are selling reasonably well, so there could be a full house in in Kavanaugh, and we, you know, we we'll sit down and watch it again, I suppose. But it just kind of seems like it's drifting quite quite badly now. Carl Frampton is defending his EBU European Super Bantamweight title against Jeremy Parody, Frenchman in Belfast at the Odyssey Arena on Saturday night. More significantly, this is billed as a world title eliminator. The last time Carl was in the ring, he fought and beat and knocked out Kiko Martinez, a name. We know particularly well in, in Irish boxing terms. That was back in February, though. Carl, thanks very much for talking to us. You must be champing at the bit to get back in there. Yeah, I can't wait. Now nah, it's sort of a hot side fall through in the summer, um, which which wasn't ideal. But I've uh, you know I've been I've been training hard. I've had a long training camp, and I'm more than prepared for this one. The Martinez win was hugely impressive, and it's been an upward kind of curve in your professional career so far. It's all gone perfectly, really, or as, as well as you've certainly do, done all you can in the ring. Have you noticed, even coming up to this fight, more and more attention, more and more excitement building up uh, around Belfast and uh, in the UK? Yeah, massively. There's a, there's a massive buzz, buzz, especially around Belfast at the minute. And, you know, um, this new venture with, with Cyclone Promotions, we're putting on a, a great bill here. Um, the world title eliminator for myself, but um, we've got uh, a build full of Irish fighters, which which is great. Um, not just for me, but just for the local lads to give them a chance. So um, the buzz is here, and you know it's it's getting it's getting big, it's getting big, and we're getting close to something really special this time. It seems like you're you're very you don't just look at your own career. You seem quite interested in, you say there, the other Irish fighters who'll be on the bill. I know you were tweeting good luck messages to the amateurs who are hopefully going to win a couple of medals over at the World Championships. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You know, I, I sort of done it on the back of, you know, I was to have, when I was coming up, sort of Paul McCluskey topping bills in, in Belfast and I got on a couple of his undercards and, and that was great for me and great exposure. So, 
I know how important it is to, to get the, the right exposure, to be on, on TV and, and get in the press and stuff. So a lot of these guys that are on the bill are, are personal friends of mine, you know, so it's, it's, it feels nice to, to be able to help out. You're obviously headlining it and you talk about the excitement in Belfast. Is it something that you, you're quite close to the fight now. Do you have to switch off from it entirely or can you can you soak some of it up? Can you actually embrace, because I know different fighters would approach it different ways. Do you actually kind of yeah. actively, you know, actively accept all the attention or do you like to shut yourself off entirely? No, well, actually, I, I'm different from most. I sort of, you know, a lot of fighters would like to go into isolation and lockdown mode and not talk to anyone and, and kind of get in the zone very, very early. But I like to be around my family and friends and, um, you know, try not to think about the fight actually too much um, until sort of maybe the way in and, and after that. But um, I, I'm sort of a relaxed person who, who doesn't like the tension and I just like to stay as calm as possible, really. Yeah, I saw Barry McGuigan w- was making that point about you and he said it was different from him. He said in his days he would do that. He'd go into isolation, he'd be manic about it, he'd fight on a Saturday night and then get out and train the next day. Whereas he says you train as hard, but you train a little bit more smartly than him. You seem to be a bit more chilled out about it. Well, I think that's just, it's its not down to me, really. That's thats down to, uh, the, the, you know, my trainer, Shane McGuigan. He's hes a smart one. I just sort of trust his judgment and, and do as I'm told. Um, but um, back in Barry's day, it was different. You know, it's always, things are always improving and getting better. So Barry has probably openly admit that he didn't rest as much as he should have. Um, and you know he was always drafting and training hard in the gym but I'm, I'm different I like to rest when I get the chance and uh, I get plenty of it when I need it I'm sure sports preparation in general has come on a lot in the years in the 20-30 years since then anyway so you're probably following better better practices now maybe than Barry would have even though he was doing at the time what he would have felt was best yeah that's it it's just always developing and always improving not just in boxing um, but in, in all sports and um, I kind of think that uh Boxing's probably a sport where there's still sort of dinosaurs, if you want to call them that, um, involved. You know, it's still it's still a little bit uh, behind other sports. But I'm I'm very lucky that I've got a, a good sort of sensible team uh, around me who who know what needs to be done to get to the top. You'll be feeding off the crowd, I'm sure, on Saturday night, uh, Carl. What about your opponent, uh, Jeremy Parody? What what can we expect from him? Well, uh, we've we've seen very little footage of him online. Um, we've we've got a little bit, but it's it's old footage. So we're kind of going into this blind. But what what I'm hearing is he's aggressive. He's not much of a puncher, but um, he's a you know he's aggressive and he likes to have a fight. So I'm hoping that he does. I'm hoping that once once I hit him hard in the first round, he doesn't go into a shell. And I hope I hope he wants to stand and have a fight with me because then it has all the ingredients for a for a fantastic night and a fantastic um, fight. Is that a tough one for you, though? Martinez, you would have seen loads of, and Irish boxing fans know all about Kiko Martinez, um, whereas this is a guy who you say yourself you're going in blind a little bit. I mean, you should be, you should have enough for him, obviously, but is it something in the back of your mind where you're thinking, I don't know exactly what he's going to be bringing here? Well, no, not really, because I think that's when, when the amateur experience comes in. I was lucky enough to have sort of about 160 amateur fights and a, a box for Ireland. I was on the high-performance team and stuff as an amateur, so... You know, it was happening all the time. You were traveling the international tournaments and, and fighting guys who you'd never seen before and sometimes against countries you'd never even heard of before. So, um, you know, it, it's I'm used to that. And I have a good style. I like to sort of suss someone out in the early rounds. And I can sort of deal with it myself then. And we can, you know, I know how to fight people from after 
couple of minutes into a fight, I'll kind of know myself what to do, but it's always good to be able to get a bit of advice from the corner as well. Yeah, just lastly, do you think that the amateurs can bring a couple of medals home, your your friend Paddy Barnes and guys like that? I I, I guarantee that they'll, they'll bring medals home. And, uh, you know, they're, for such a small nation, they're one of the top uh, amateur boxing nations in the world, and the stuff that they're doing down there and a high performance, and the local clubs around Ireland is, is fantastic. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see sort of four or five medals coming home, honestly. And if you look right through the team, um, they've all a case, you know, you could you could argue that they'll all have a chance of winning the medal, but it all depends on the draw. And if they get a little bit of luck, there's no reason why they all can't win medals. Yep, sounds good. Well, listen, best of luck in your own fight on Saturday, Carl. Thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you very much. I love the confidence that boxers have, not even just in themselves, but also in their teammates or former teammates and friends. Yeah, they're going to definitely go over and win loads of medals at the World Championships. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, I, th- I think that, you know, you set yourself up in a sport like boxing. There's just no other way around it. I mean, you have to be confident about yourself and then you just have to keep being confident about every, uh, about everyone else as well. But I mean, I, I think it is that uh, it is interesting. I mean, I, re- I remember reading uh, Cyclone, the Barry McGuigan uh, autobiography last year, I think it was, or maybe the year before. And his description of those fight nights in Belfast uh, were absolutely brilliant, you know, mm-hmm. and, I, and there was a sign or a, a real sense as you were reading it that um, that those occasions gave him a huge momentum in his career, and you know, were kind of the fire that that was lit under him to to become a yeah, world McGuigan, champion. Yeah, uh, McGuigan. Just to, in case uh, people, are, um, Barry McGuigan is his manager slash yeah. uh, the I don't know if it's promoter or manager, what the technical what the correct term is there. But uh, and Shane McGuigan, Barry McGuigan's son, is his trainer. Just so yeah, and uh, I you know you just you really think that there is a huge momentum developing behind this guy, um, and you know we've seen it before in boxing come to nothing. Uh, but this guy does kind of appear to be the, the real deal. Ken, are you going to be as ballsy in your prediction for Republic of Ireland versus Kazakhstan today? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say Ireland 3, Kazakhstan 1. Balls of steel, Ken. Maybe you could manage the Irish team. Well, uh, I'm available. and if Are you? Just displaying your testicles like that, Ken, is really top class. We appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, look, you know, if it's 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 every Irishman has to consider what he can do for you know ask not what your country can do for you you know so that's what I'm uh, that would be my approach thanks Ken thanks Owen thanks Ken thanks Owen <laughs> thanks lads thanks for listening goodbye that's the second time it's gone off never go home they never go home they never go home those, those, those boys even on a budget Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry champagne, 
Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.